0: Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we're switching things up a little bit because our producers are on a well-deserved vacation, so... What we did was reached out to our good friends over at the Indie Matters podcast. They're always putting out great stuff, and we're going to do a little bit of a swap. So uh, today we're going to bring in uh, Joey Lovato from Indie Matters podcast and find out what you are going to hear from them. So Joey, hey, how's it going, man?
1: <laughs> it's going well. Um, yeah, so you're going to hear three, three different stories from us that are all uh, pretty short. Um, we're going to start with um, a, a, a study of the air quality in East Las Vegas that was going on and you did something similar right David not quite air quality but something else
0: Yeah, we did uh, recently, we did heat mapping as citizen scientists, uh, where we strapped on a device to our vehicle and headed out on a predetermined map, sending this data to a central location uh, about heat at different times in the day of of Las Vegas, which was fine at seven in the morning. But uh, apparently doing that same route along Las Vegas Boulevard on Saturday night uh, was a whole different thing.
1: So, yeah, that first piece is from uh, our reporter, Carmen Landinger, and uh, she, she talks to me about about that that study of uh, looking into the air quality and kind of climate injustice and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and the second piece that you're going to hear from us is uh, an interview that my co-host Jacob Solis did with Joe Muris, who is a professor over at Nevada State College, and she had a short film show at Comic-Con, um, which is super cool. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with uh, the third segment. Uh, which is on the bristlecone pine a, a personal passion of mine. Um, and I talked to the 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 head of uh, Great Basin National Park um, James Wolsey, as well as a scientist out there Gretchen Baker uh, talking
0: about one of the oldest trees in the world the majestic bristlecone pine <laughs> that's I right. love it. Oh, that's so fantastic Well, we're really happy to be able to do these sort of things and we really look forward to it We're big fans of the Nevada Independent uh, and you know Indie Matters podcast. Uh, I'm going to just say it. My second favorite Nevada podcast, but so close, so
1: close. <laughs> Shoot, I almost, I almost, I almost came in first. Well, CityCast Las Vegas is my second favorite Nevada podcast. Well, that's my as well. third
0: favorite. My <laughs> oh, no. first one is this like gambling <laughs> podcast website. It's just, it's very obscure. I'm, I'm one of only three listeners. But yeah, no, I'm just <laughs> joking. We're both great, uh, and I think this episode is going to be absolutely fantastic, gangbusters. So let's hit it. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. I'm David Figler, here with Joey Lovato from Indie Matters, and this is CityCast Las Vegas.
2: We've got a story on one area of the Las Vegas Valley that's being heavily impacted by poor air quality and what that means for its residents.
1: That's right. And one project called Buenaire para Todos project is looking to help improve and monitor the air quality in the area. I'm here with reporter Carmen Landinger, and you have been reporting on um, air quality in East Las Vegas. It's an issue that's been plaguing the region actually for quite a while. And so to start off, there's been this new report that's come out and they kind of this new initiative that's working to clean up the air. So just tell me about that. What, what's going on? How are they looking to help the area?
3: Yes. Yeah, so it's actually a fund started by the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and they're working with Impact Nevada, the Desert Research Institute. East Las Vegas Library, and also with Make the Road Nevada, and a couple of other partners. And through that, they got a $300,000 grant in order to implement monitors and sensors around the East Las Vegas area. And those monitors and sensors will help check on the clean air, because there is currently, there's a lack of air quality monitors in East Las Vegas. Therefore, there isn't a lot of data on the air quality. However, the data that they do have at the current moment shows that the air quality in East Las Vegas is poor compared to the air quality in other areas. And so what this plan is doing is it is going to help to implement those monitors. And they're going to be putting 10 monitors outside in like public areas, streetlights, outside of buildings. And then they're also going to be placing 10 monitors and sensors on food carts and food trucks. East Las Vegas has a very high amount of Latino residents, 66%. So it makes up the large majority of the community. And a lot of those workers actually work outside in food trucks, gardeners, all types of like outdoor businesses, and they're more directly affected with the heat. So that's why it's really important that these monitors are placed on more of these outdoor elements. And then they will also be placed inside houses as well. It's going to be placed inside 20 indoor houses of like voluntary participants. And then there also is going to be filters that's placed inside those houses as well.
1: I'm curious too, like you said, there isn't much monitoring there now, but the monitor they have been doing, it shows that the air quality is not great. What is, what is the air quality like there right now?
3: Yeah. So if you check like the EPA website, they have like their air now, which shows like the air quality index. And from that on like a typical day-to-day basis, it is at a moderate rate with high levels of ozone, high levels of PM 2.5, which is particulate matter. And both of those come from pollution from vehicles, highways. East Las Vegas is located right next to the Spaghetti Bowl intersection. And so what a moderate rate means is people, if they are sensitive or at higher risk of health factors, that they should probably limit their time outside, spend a little bit more time indoors, and just monitoring what the air quality is in order to protect their health.
1: It's a it's a large population center and it's in a it's in a valley so that poor air collects. But it, it does seem like East Las Vegas is, is disproportionately affected by this poor air quality and caused by the climate crisis that we're seeing. Why is East Las Vegas being more disproportionately affected by this?
3: Yes. Yeah, so a lot of this has to do with environmental justice. East Las Vegas is one of the communities that is a little bit older compared to other communities here in Las Vegas. And with that, when you really inspect the whole situation, you can find, like, areas of redlining, which is a discriminatory practice in which neighborhoods of color were placed in areas that were underestablished. And, like, if you look more into that, it's placed right next to the Spaghetti Bowl, which is the huge intersection of, like, highways and everything. And so all that smog, that pollution is going into the air. And then also, if you look at East Las Vegas compared to areas such as like Summerlin or even the Green Valley Ranch area, there is more parks and there's more trees. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that those areas are like newer and they get renovated more. As well as I was saying, it's made up of predominantly Latino residents. And the majority of residents have a lower income level for the households. And also a lot of the households are older and they have not been renovated. They have not been fixed. And there is also lower access to resources. And is
1: the solution to help with mitigating this poor air quality right now? Is it just monitoring it and then seeing what they can do in the future? Or are there any proposed things to do to, to help with this air quality at the moment?
3: Yeah, so a main thing that they want to do right now is just gathering that data. But there is also Make the Road Nevada, which is an immigrant advocacy group, and they're going to be working directly with community members, with the residents, individuals, and seeing what resources they can give them firsthand. East Las Vegas Library is also another place that will be giving educational resources in order to talk more about what air quality is, what they can do in order to make those small steps at home to make small steps outside and just spreading that awareness on the issue.
1: Is air pollution a danger to people only when they're outside or is it also a danger when you're inside?
3: Yeah, so that's a good question. Unfortunately, you can't really escape it. (laughs) And so when it comes to older homes, there is less ventilation systems. There is also other factors from like the, the paint that is used the lead-based paint, that is also a powerful toxin. There could be like leaky pipes. And so there's just factors such as that where there's like not a proper amount of ventilation systems and also a mixture of just lead-based paint or just old toxins that need to be replaced. And unfortunately, some of the residents are not at a position to be able to constantly replacing that. And so that is also something that is making the issue a little bit worse cause it's not necessarily like you can just go indoors and escape it.
1: How how does bad air quality affect someone's health? Obviously it has to do with your respiratory system a lot, but what are some of those symptoms that people see when, when, when they're experiencing bad air quality for a long period of time?
3: Yeah, so the residents who are most at risk of this are people who already have underlying health issues. So it can affect asthma to like obesity mainly the PM 2.5, that pollution, it causes directly to the respiratory system. In some cases, it's mainly just like asthma as discussed. There might even be like a pulmonary disease that can develop like short-term impacts if you're just like breathing it in for a long time or like coughing, sneezing. But then of course, there's also like long-term effects. There can even be like lung, lung cancer that can be developed if like it really is a worsened case.
1: Are there higher rates of pulmonary issues or lung cancer or issues like that in East Las Vegas than there are in other parts of Las Vegas?
3: In East Las Vegas, there was actually a study done and it shows like how many people suffer from certain health diseases. And so in the zip code of 89101, which is where the East Las Vegas library is, almost 10.1% of adults suffer from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But in the Summerlin area, in the zip code of 89144, there is only 5.6% of adults who have some form of a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This data isn't necessarily according to just the clean air in general, but you can correlate the two to see the differences in between the health effects of an area who has a little bit of cleaner air versus an area who has poor air. There is definitely a clear difference.
1: All right, Carmen. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You can read your story on our website, the
3: Great. Thank you.
1: we have an interview Jacob did with Joe Muris, a professor at Nevada State College. Her animated short film, Aurora, aired at San Diego Comic-Con this year, and she talked about her journey getting there.
2: What got you into animation, just as a medium, as an art form?
4: It's funny, because actually what I wanted to do when I was in high school is I wanted to do comic books, but my guidance counselor Tried to convince me that I needed to be doing something with my science grades. So I didn't actually end up in animation until afterwards. I did two years of a a pre-med degree and I was miserable. And my mom got pissed off at me because I was making everybody around me miserable. And she said, what do you want to do? You know, if you don't want to do the medicine thing, don't do the medicine thing. What do you want to do? And Nightmare Before Christmas had just come out. And I remember seeing it and being like, oh no, it's this. It's the, this is what I should be doing, and so I told her I wanted to be an animator, and she said, "So go be an animator." And so I looked up animation programs. It was so obvious that was where I needed to be.
2: Okay. Well, before we get too far away from it, I have to ask: You wanted to get into comic books. What was your What was your favorite comic book?
4: It was the It was the DC line: Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman.
2: So then, what is it specifically about animation that sort of gets you going as an artist?
4: Oh my gosh. It's many things. It is the way it can be used to tell a story. Hand-drawn animation is about symbol- symbolism because things are simplified for the medium. But for me, what I love the most is just the process, the obsessive minutia of it. It's very soothing. <laughs> and I love how when you start with just like a line on the page and you just kind of work like frame by frame and all of a sudden. This thing comes alive and it moves. And there, there are things that I, I mean, even the film, when, you know, when I was watching it in the screening, I was looking at it going like, oh, my God, like I, I remember animating that scene, but I don't remember the process of animating it anymore. All I see is the results. And it's like, I, I did that. Like, I have no idea where that came from.
2: So I want to dig into the movie itself a little bit. So for the listeners, you are the creator of a short film called Aurora, which is about a girl and a horse called Aurora. And it's drawn in this lovely sort of children's book animation style. What's the challenge of animating something like that, that really sort of like lacks the regular 3D forms that we're used to?
4: So I chose that style on purpose, partly because I wanted for the audience to like experience the story and experience the emotion in the story. And once you design something that is extremely figurative, then it becomes a story about that specific person in this specific situation. Working in that style itself is a challenge in that like most people will just, I mean, people probably look at the trailer and be like, it's stick figures. Like they... We are so used to seeing something that is overproduced these days, especially with computer animation. You know, it's, it's so overly designed and like there's just so much content in a single frame. And so I knew that already that simplified style, people were going to be like, oh, I don't like that. Like, that's not what an animation is supposed to look like. So my goal was to focus on the animation itself on the way that it moved. I wanted it to move really nicely. When you're trying
2: to translate that motion into animation, what's that process like? Can you describe it?
4: Depending on the shot, it's always a slightly different process. So if something very simple, you can say, okay, the movement's going to start here and end there. So you'll start with your first pose. You'll start with an end pose. You'll fill in some of the middle ones and then you'll time it.
2: So I wanted to ask about the story itself, right? Because you've got this little girl who makes friends with a horse named Aurora, but it's a bittersweet story and I'm not going to give it away. Go find it at a festival near you if you want to go watch it. But what led you to this story? I guess, why was this a story you wanted to tell in this short?
4: So this is a story I've actually, I had, it, it sat in my back pocket for like 20 years. When I originally conceived of it, I mean, I had the very first couple lines in the film and it was this it was accompanied by a gleeful little children's drawing style doodle when I met this horse named Aurora and she was just the most beautiful creature I had ever seen and how you will have these connections with an animal sometimes like anybody who has a pet who you connect with it when you're like that's the one I mean that that was Aurora she followed me around and was like chewing on my clothes. I'm going to freaking cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and like nuzzling my like shoulder and my back. And she just wouldn't leave me alone. And the, the breeder was like, like, she really likes you. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I can tell. I, I, I'm going to have to find a way to, to bring her home with me. And that was, I mean, initially it was just the first lines of the, of the film that was going to be the, the rest of my life. And yeah, we can't give away the film, but things don't always work out the way you expect them to. And when things happened, the story evolved from that.
2: Okay. So I wanted to ask specifically about Comic Con. So the animation show of shows, which is distributing this film through showings right now, had a showing at Comic Con. And as part of that, you were on a panel there in San Diego. So can you just describe
4: what was that experience like? I'm going to try not to swear. Holy nope, too late. Sorry. I'd never been to Comic Con. We already have established that like, I wanted to do comic books when I was a teenager. I mean, Comic-Con has existed for as long as I have been alive. It was nerds who went in the 80s and 90s, and we were the ones who knew about it. And then it became this huge pop culture thing. And I've, I've wanted to go my whole life and never managed to get there and getting tickets now these days, it's really, really difficult. So it was one of those things like it's on my bucket list. I I really, I have to do this one year, but I never thought that I was going to get to. So this was my first Comic-Con ever. And I was presenting. It was just this, like, it was just, ah, like I just can't. There was not. There's like no way to describe it. I mean, I was just on adrenaline high the entire time I was there. And when we were there, there was—I don't know the exact numbers, but there's someone around four thousand people. It was packed. It was full. It was full, to bursting. And yeah, you just look out, and there's just all these people, and they're looking at you. <laughs> and you know, and they did a Q and A after, and and that was that was really cool too because there was a lot of questions, just like directed at me. It was amazing. It, it was it was so cool.
2: You had your panel and that is an incredible experience, right? For you as an animator, as a professional to get to go do that and present to people and that audience, but also it's Comic-Con. So you're there, it's a packed schedule. What was your favorite thing that you did there while, while you're in San Diego?
4: I mean, you have to walk the exhibit floor. And of course I'd be walking around and people would stop me and ask me about my film, which I, I wasn't expecting. The coolest thing I got to do on the floor, I found the heavy metal booth And I used to read that. I used to read Heavy Metal Magazine when I was a teenager. I would buy it and hide it underneath my bed. My parents would not have been happy to find out that I was reading that magazine. And there wasn't a line. So I got to talk to them and just, I mean, it it was cool. And when, you know, when they told me they're still looking for like new and emerging artists, I was just like, okay, that's the next thing I need to check off my list.
2: Joe Muris is an animator and a professor at Nevada State College whose short film Aurora was playing at the animation show of shows at Comic-Con. Joe, thanks so much.
4: Thank you.
1: All right, now you're going to be hearing a piece on the bristlecone pine, one of the oldest trees in the world. And I went on a hike with James Wolsey, who is the head of the Great Basin National Park, as well as talked to Gretchen Baker, who is a scientist out there studying the bristlecone. James Woolsey is the superintendent of Great Basin National Park and he and I went on a hike a few weeks back so that he could show me something really special. They're magical. They're they're so old and I think to think about it, how
5: can a tree live for 5,000 years?
1: The bristlecone pine is one of the state trees of Nevada and is one of the oldest living single organisms in the world. That doesn't mean it's immortal though. The tree, like other organisms around the world, is facing several environmental threats. We'll dive into that in a minute, but first, let's hear more about these spectacular trees' age.
6: I think bristle cones help put life into perspective. You have to work a little bit to get to go see these bristle cones, but if you take the time to do that, you feel appreciative of all they've gone through and you realize, ah, yeah, life might be better than I think it is.
1: (laughs) That was Gretchen Baker. She's an ecologist and a cave specialist at Great Basin National Park. She talked to reporter Daniel Rothberg and me for this story.
6: Well, bristlecone pine is one of the longest living organisms on Earth. When you get up to the trees and you look at the bristlecone pines, you just feel a little different. They started growing long before you were born, long before your parents were born, your grandparents, back many, many generations. And it's just a different time scale.
1: If you've never seen a bristlecone pine, don't think of your typical tree. Some of these trees really look like they're thousands of years old, with gnarled branches and very wide trunks. James was telling me all about them on our hike.
5: In areas where it seems like they need to struggle a little bit more, they get these disjointed shapes, and they're not even round at all. It's almost like a tree you'd see in a Dr. Seuss novel. Squarish and have shoots going up in all directions. They have bark on a small little portion of the tree. They'll have three or four limbs, and three of the limbs will be dead, and one limb will have little <laughs> tufts of green on it. And you'll think, well, that thing has to be dead, but but there's just one living thing on it. So we're coming up on this one, which really is a funky one. I mean, it's so hard. It's like a stone. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this one has more green than most of them, and that's probably why it grew up a little bit.
6: So bristlecone pines can live so long because they just hang on to life for a really long time. And they do that by letting parts of the tree die. So if the roots get exposed, that's a death knell for that part of the tree that is supported by those roots. But if there are roots that are still underground, that part of the tree can still continue growing. So there might just be a strip of bark that goes up from those roots and helps to get the water and nutrients up to that part of the tree. It's called strip barking, and you can see some trees with some amazing twisting and turning and that that strip of bark just follows along till it gets out to those bristlecone pine needles and those themselves can be up to 40 years old
1: the bristlecone has a pretty extensive range actually they grow through most of the great basin and in areas like owens valley in eastern california as well as in central and eastern nevada utah and colorado as well as small portions of northern arizona and new mexico they don't compete well with other trees and commonly succumb to root rot in gardens. They thrive in harsh environments where most other plants can't grow, in high altitudes with rocky soils, in areas with
5: little rainfall. They're kind of on top of all these high elevation areas all over the place. So I think you know some people I think are under the impression that they're, they're very limited in scope or they're rare, but they're actually not that rare. The really oldest trees might be a little rarer, it's kind of where they can grow and where they can grow a long time. And it seems like something that's particularly important, you know, especially if someone's going to live two or four thousand years, is they're not in a place that's going to burn all the time.
1: And that is now one of the threats facing the tree. With climate change comes more fires, which could burn some of the trees that are thousands of years old.
3: It more has burn
1: scars on it, you can see. Yeah. Yeah. They are somewhat fire resistant, huh?
5: Yes, and they, you know, you know, every once in a while, you got to assume that a fire will come through here. We know this area is burned historically because we're able to go into the lakes and look at the layers of mud. And every once in a while, there'll be a charcoal layer, you know, like 1300 or something like that. There was a huge probably stand replacing fire up Mm -hmm. here. The evidence seems to indicate that, certainly since humans have been here over the last 15,000 years, this place was well burned, and since Euro-American colonization, this area has burned hardly at all. Mm -hmm. And so the ecology has really drastically changed in the last 150 years. And you'd think, oh, less fires, that's
1: good, but instead of having small fires that just leave a scar, now there is more fuel because the area hasn't burned in so long that could lead to a much larger fire that could leave more than just a scar on some of these thousand-year-old trees. Here's Gretchen again.
6: Wildfire, generally those older bristlecone pines have a lot of space among the trees, and so the fire usually doesn't carry that well. But what we're finding is at lower elevations, mid-mountain, the trees are denser and when the wildfires do occur there. They can be hotter and burn faster and we can get more sparks up into the bristlecone pines than possibly in in past times, that the bristlecones might be a little more susceptible to fire now.
1: But fire isn't the only threat these pines face. There's also white pine blister rust, a fungus that can kill the tree.
6: White pine blister rust the non-native fungus, but we can are monitoring for it because in Colorado, where it's come in, it has really hurt a lot of the bristlecone pines.
1: There are efforts to protect from the fungus, though, where Great Basin, the U.S. Forest Service, and Rocky Mountain Research Station are collaborating. And another threat to the tree, and possibly the scariest, are beetles.
5: We're we're learning more and more about this, but yes, there are little bugs that seem to be natural, almost predators of trees. And so we have beetles, but it does seem like the bristlecone, in particular seems more able to withstand those things and fend them off. And then we've just discovered a couple of populations of bristle cones that are being invaded by beetles. And one is on the range in Death Valley that Telescope Peak is on. And then the second range is in western utah and in both those populations we found bristle cones invaded by these beetles it's absolutely scary because we we really don't understand it yet is that is there something unique about those two populations that has allowed that or is this maybe our first warning of something bigger that's going to happen
6: we put verbenone, which is a pheromone to ward off mountain pine beetle. The verbenone works to basically tell other mountain pine beetles that this tree is already full of mountain pine beetles. They should go find some other tree. It seems to work quite well. So that's in progress. Over in Death Valley, they they are definitely having some problems with the bristlecone pine. The pine beetles are able to attack those trees because they're so stressed with the, the drought.
1: On top of all of this, the environment that these trees grow best in poses a challenge in and of itself. The fact that some of these trees make it thousands of years is a minor miracle.
6: Bristlecone pines are the masters of living in harsh conditions. They have to deal with really cold temperatures all winter long. They deal with a nearly non-stop wind because the, the The ones that grow the longest are often on ridges. And because of that, they grow in these unique forms where a lot of them are hunched over or growing in a particular direction because the wind has shaped them. If they're lucky enough to make it past the the seedling stage when they can be eaten by various things, they they have to grow very slowly, deal with very little water, very few nutrients. They can deal with a lot of intense sun because they're up at high elevations. They deal with just all sorts of environmental difficulties and yet they just keep doing it year after year and century after century and millennia after millennia.
1: So there are fires, fungus, and beetles threatening
5: these trees. But as we've learned, These are hardy plants that can really survive A challenging environment.
1: So they're threatened, but they aren't endangered. So why are we talking about them then? On top of being so unique and old, they can teach us a lot. One fascinating thing is that these trees are actually migrating. Just like an animal might migrate to find a sustainable climate to live and breed and thrive in, so too do trees, just on a longer timescale.
6: So we are seeing the bristlecone pine growing up higher on the mountain now. We have little seedlings that are starting to creep up the mountains. They're trying to find more hospitable climate to grow. We have stumps of them growing up on Mount Washington higher than where they are growing now. And that is from when the climate used to be even warmer than it is now. And the trees had to move up the mountain. They grew, then it got a little colder and they died. And so we get really cool climate records from those stumps that are up a little higher. So bristlecone pine is very adaptable to different climates. However, because it does take so long to get going and to start producing pine seeds, sometimes it can be 40 or 50 years before it produces viable pine seeds. If climate change happens too fast, that could make it a little harder for it to survive long term. Bristlecone pines live so long that we can actually measure geology with the trees. These trees grow so long that you can see the erosional rates of the rocks under them.
1: And on top of what we can learn, these behemoths of trees, these ancient sentinels of the Sierra Nevadas, Rockies, and Great Basin mountains, are inspiring. Their age is one thing, but as James put it, it's not the only thing that makes them spectacular. So these are like some of the oldest organisms
5: on earth huh and we love things that are the biggest or the oldest and you know I, I do think sometimes we we go a little bit overboard on those things even beyond how old they are just how they look they're like a piece of art they're beautiful so a hundred years ago I don't think a human would have looked at these trees and said these are special and we we're gonna we're gonna make a big deal about them <laughs> but I think eventually through time, People discovered how old they are, and then they started really looking at them and thinking about them. This is amazing. You know, we live on this amazing planet that has such incredible natural resources. And I think, you know, just even the last couple hundred years, think about what we've learned about our place in the universe. And, you know, and now we know as animals, you know, they've been here millions of years and we're protecting an important slice of that. Human beings, I think for a long time, we've lived on this earth and not really thought through what we're doing. And we just go do whatever seems right and oftentimes cause animals to go extinct and things of that sort. And you know, as a National Park Service, I think we're doing a really important mission to preserve this natural heritage that belongs to all of us.
1: This piece was reported and produced by myself, Joey Lovato and Daniel Rothberg. It was edited by me with additional help from Jackie Valley. I was also able to go on that hike with James thanks to PBS Reno's show, Wild Nevada. They will have an episode all about Great Basin National Park and Baker, Nevada that is supposed to air sometime in spring, 2023. So make sure to keep your eye out for that.
0: Joey, I love Great Basin National Park it is just such a treasure. I'm a little jealous about your walk. Um, hey, man, thanks so much for being part of CityCast Las Vegas today.
1: Really appreciate it, David. Thanks.
0: And that's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you enjoyed the show, first... Go subscribe to Indie Matters. We love them and you will too. And then go tell a friend about CityCast. Rate the show. Leave us a review and subscribe to our morning newsletter. It's a banger. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city and even up in northern Nevada sometimes. Hey, y'all. Talk soon.
1: I really appreciate it, David. Appreciate uh, you guys as well. That was terrible. That was awkward. <laughs> Hang on. Let me. T-